Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. everyone and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight we're joined by Woody Wade, who is a recognized expert in scenario planning, who uses his unique method to help businesses and leaders chart the future. Woody, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to the problems you're trying to solve today. Okay, sure. Well, um, I I live in Switzerland. Uh, you didn't mention that, not that you have to, but uh, I've been <laughs> I'm an American, as you can probably hear from my accent. I grew up in Indiana, went to Indiana University, majored in German, which I thought would get me absolutely nowhere. So I decided to get an MBA and I got accepted into uh, Harvard, which um, opened lots of doors. Um, so when I did my MBA, and this is like back in the year, you know, 4 AD, right. <laughs> uh, one of the things that they didn't actually teach at the time was scenario planning. They, they Of course, it's, it's you know, that... Uh, at the MBA level, it's all about strategy and sort of how to put together a winning model to, um, you know, to assure your future success in, a, in, a, in any kind of business. But there was no scenario thinking going on at that time. Um, so when I graduated, I actually, because of this German major that I had as an undergraduate, I actually got a job offer from a Swiss company, came over here thinking I'd be here for a couple of years, and that was 1982. So you can sort of <laughs> see that my, my personal strategy didn't really work out quite so well. Right. Um, However, what happened was over time, uh, in the couple of jobs that I had here, um, I got exposed to this concept of, of the future actually possibly going off in different directions. And um, I think what really cinched it for me, uh, as far as a, a real um, super enough of an interest to really kind of say, I want to go down this path professionally, was that for a while, for about three years, I was working with the World Economic Forum, which I think maybe you've heard of. It's a, you know, they put on this big meeting every year in Davos in Switzerland, right. um, where world leaders, but business governments, sometimes, you know, there's a little smattering of celebrities and scientists and things like that. But basically, a, a lot of people get together and talk about sort of where, where the world was headed. And one of the things that struck me at that time was just how hungry these people were for any insights about how things might be developing, you know, in the future. And of course, it's because they're responsible. You know, a lot of these people, you know, being CEOs or the equivalent in another organization, you know, they, they felt the weight on their shoulders of having to put together a plan for uh, making sure that they were competitive in the future and their, or their their big idea would be implemented successfully, whatever whatever it was. But everything was about the future and that their their entire jobs, at least for as far as I could see as a, you know, as a, a, a lowly uh, um, sort of conference organizer was to um, try to foresee what was coming down the line and that and to get their organizations ready for it or and or to be able to exploit whatever those changes might be if they could if they could actually sort of you know confidently see see them so with that um not not too long after that i actually decided to go independent and hung up a shingle and said you know here woody wade scenario planner and you know there 
I, I was hoping at the time, of course, that I didn't have to have any kind of, you know, advanced degree in scenario planning itself. But what happened for me, you know, for, as long as we're sticking on the subject of me, right. um, I wrote a book on the subject uh, a few, just a few months after I got uh, started in the subject. Um, and that book actually opened, you know, lots of doors, people kind of, um, but my understanding is that the book is kind of one of maybe five reference works on the subject. And it's a lot different in terms of its look and feel um, compared to, let's say, more serious academic books on the subject. It's a little, I won't say it's light, but it's, um, it's, it's kind of, you know, pays attention to design. And it's, it's, it's not like one of these very stuffy um, kind of books that, you know, has lots of footnotes and things like that. So it, it, it uh, has become a, uh, a, a bit of a calling card for me. So what year, what year was it that you did your first scenario? Uh, uh, 10, 10 years ago or 11, something like that. So right around the year okay. 2010 ish, uh, something like that. So it's not that long ago, really. I mean, I, you know, I, um, and I, it's not, I you know, cards on the table. It's not like I have done thousands and thousands of these things because it's not the sort of thing that, you know, you're, calendar is just chock-a-block with uh with with workshops however what's interesting is that the clients that i've worked for um come from something like 35 different countries and lots and lots of different industries so i, I haven't seen it all by a long shot but i have actually seen um how this methodology can be applied to all kinds of different things you know and that can range not only um throughout the whole gamut of uh, profit-making corporations, you know, who, who are either, you know, they're in oil and gas or they're in fisheries or they're in sure. bicycle manufacturing or whatever it might be, but also in things like um, NGOs and charitable foundations. Because, I mean, all of these organizations want to be successful in the future, right? And so understanding how their future might develop is very critical to the plans that they make today, um, you know, in the hopes that they that they will uh, not be wrong about how they, um, you know, they, they made their organization sort of take the preparatory steps for a future that, um, you know, that will maybe materialize um, 10 years down the line, five years down the line, something like that. And now, of course, with, uh, with COVID, um, the time horizon has changed entirely. It used to, it used to be the scenario planning uh, time horizon used to be 10 years. That was kind of the, you know, the rule of thumb and that you could, play around with that a little bit because some people said, ah, oh, no, it's too long. You know, in 10 years from now, no, none of us will be here. We don't care. Five years. I said, okay, fine. That's, you know, no problem. I get that. But now it's like, they want to see about, you know, 12 months into the future because things have changed so much. And you've had, you could kind of say you could have a decade worth of, of environmental changes, business environmental changes compressed into one year, you know, last year, 2020, the year none of us will ever forget. Right. And we're still not out of the woods, right? So the the um, the uncertainties evolve a little bit, and I can talk about that later, maybe in more detail. But but basically, the um, the idea that things can still evolve and the future might be in that direction, it might be in that direction, is is just as valid today as it ever was. Only when that new landscape actually begins to uh, solidify and you know be identifiable as a business landscape that's that that's now months months when it whereas it used to be years so it's, it's changed quite a lot in that regard so i wanted to ask you about attention and something that i noticed uh, in in some of the comments you made 
you said that you majored in German for all the job opportunities, right? Then got an MBA and, um, <laughs> and, um, you're being facetious, I hope, because yeah, there, are no jo- there are no job opportunities for a language major unless you want to teach it. But right. anyway, that's um, on the story, yes. So then you went, you went and got your MBA. There was very little in the right. way of strategic foresight or trying to parse the different ways the future could go. And then you said that all companies want to succeed in the future, which is self-evidently true. Oh, so yeah. so, so right. why is it that this isn't more taught in business schools? And why is it that oh. your calendar isn't yeah. filled with people wanting to... You know, do some forecasts. No, I, I wish I could understand that myself. No, actually, the answer is um, that most business school curricula now do teach uh, foresight. Um, so it's it's one of those things that was, you know, I did my MBA back in like 1982. So I mean, this is, you know, I know I look very young and, you know, but I'm, I'm pretty decrepit. And the, um, the thing is that back when I was doing my MBA, it was not a uh, it was not on the radar of the people putting together, you know, the MBA programs, basically anywhere. There, I think there were a couple of PhD programs already back then who that that specialized in that, but it wasn't part of what you learned as an MBA. Now I think that's different. I think most um, business school programs will have, you know, they will at least um, nod to foresight. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, a, a course in it. I don't know. Couldn't say for sure. But it's but it is more well known. Now, as for your second, the second part of your question, you know, why aren't more people just clamoring, you know, knocking on my my, uh, you know, pounding down the door? Um, I'll tell you why. I, I mean, you know, it's, I'm not trying to say like they should be, but given the circumstances that we're in that now, actually, people should be. They really should be thinking along these lines. Why aren't they actually um, trying to do it in a methodical, systematic way, using scenario planning, for example? And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the people running the show in these organizations are just on the wrong side of the age curve, you know? So they're, they, they are still kind of old school a little bit, you know, back, I'm not saying there's, they're not as old as I am, but I mean, they are... They, they are perhaps um, uh, not schooled in, um, in scenario thinking. It's not something they necessarily know about. Or if, or if they do know about it right now, or let's say the last six months, they've been kind of in panic mode. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard. It's hard to convince somebody who, who hasn't already got a little exposure to the idea that scenario planning is a worthwhile exercise rather than a kind of a parlor game, you know, it, 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 to a lot of people, it sort of smells like, Oh, that'll be, Oh, won't that be fun? We'll just come up with four different futures. And then we have to go back and do our jobs tomorrow, you know, right. because things are collapsing all around us. And I'm thinking, no, well, if you do this right, uh, obviously the exercise is meant to actually help you see how things might develop. So you can actually make better decisions today you know, formulate strategy that makes sense and maybe it's more flexible in case things go in one or, or another different direction. So uh, the younger, the, I guess, you know, short and, and sweet, the, the younger you are in charge of an organization now, the more likely you are to have had some scenario uh, planning in your, in your uh, toolkit. But the older generation and I don't know, you know, I'm not sure what the cutoff there is, but, you know, let's say anybody who's sort of been in business for 20 years or something like that, 25 years, is probably not well-versed in scenario thinking. Too bad. So can 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 you give us a um, kind of a, a sense as to 
how long the process takes and kind of the steps involved and sure yeah well um the it's possible to take as long as you want to do the process obviously and that and i would actually i would um I would say there's kind of two different ways you could approach scenario planning. One is kind of the, let's say the Rolls Royce version, you know, very long and you, you know, you, you devote some, some real resources to it time-wise, especially. And there, I think, you know, you might be talking about a, a process that over a period of maybe three months, you and a team of um, people who have been kind of uh, selected to be uh, on, let's say, like a little task force, will get together. You know, this is not a full, I don't mean, you know, 40 hours a week for three months. I'm just talking about over a period where, and in between the times when you're actually, you know, advancing through the process, you know, you all go back and do your work and you cogitate on, you know, what you've, what you've been doing together. So with in, in about two or three months, you might end up there with um, a pretty solid set of uh, future scenarios that has some real um, uh, 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 some some meat that you can be confident in, um, and maybe maybe even you've gone to the what I would call the step of, of writing up little vignettes, which is kind of a fictional work, uh, sort of a day in the life of the CEO in one scenario versus another to kind of. Uh, hammer home what the what that world might be like now that's that's the gold you know the gold standard the, the, the rolls royce version now there's the other version which is the uh let's say the you know the platinum or no gold is yes. platinum is better than gold right so let's yes. say anyway it's it's the it's the ferrari rather than the uh, rolls royce <laughs> let's say and that's uh, that's the workshop where you um nowadays online you get through this process in a day uh, back in the good old days when you actually could, you know, meet everybody face to face and go off into breakout rooms and, you know, have coffee breaks and things like that. I think most of the time those, those that process was about a day and a half or two days. Um, but in that amount of time, you can get through, you, you're, you are not going to uh, write up four fictional stories in that period of time. Clearly that takes a little bit more time and imagination than you've got in a you know, in a workshop, but to get through the process and to emerge with a, a, a pretty good idea as to what four different contrasting um, business landscapes could look and feel like for your organization, not just, you know, in general, but really for you, as well as an understanding of what the opportunities and the challenges that they might present you, um, and then even some notions about how you ought to respond uh, in each of those scenarios in terms of some kind of like a scenario, uh, say, call it like a strategic to-do list or something like that. That can be done in, um, that can be done online now in a day. Let's put it that way. Maybe even a little bit less. I, I've, I've done a couple of half-day events. They're a bit rushed, to be honest. I mean, you do get through it, but you're always wishing you had more time because you had to kind of, you know, skip over some things or rush through something. If you're going to do this, bottom line is you really ought to be willing to devote enough time to make sure you're going to get really good results. Because otherwise, you know, you, the last thing you want to do is 
go through this, especially because you're going to normally have some of your colleagues participating, right? This is not necessarily a one-on-one -on -one thing, but usually it's a workshop with maybe 15 people, something like that. And if you're going to have 15 people devoting a few hours to something, I mean, you want to make sure that you're going to get something positive out of it. So it's better to say, okay, it's going to be, we are going to put in an eight hour day doing this rather than to say, no, 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 we have to stop after, you know, after lunch, because we all have work to do or something like that. And then everybody goes away and says, gosh, if only we'd had that extra half day, we would come up with something extra, extra special. Could, could we take a step back and walk through the process of scenario planning? Because, of course. Because sure. when you, you don't predict the future the way people think about it. You're not saying in 18 months, the price of semiconductors will be X, Y, or Z. Like you're trying to parse out different potential business landscapes. So tell it, tell us a little right. bit about what that looks like. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, uh, the, the, the basic concept um, comes down to this, that for any organization, there are, um, there's a very small number of what, what you call critical uncertainties that will basically determine how the future works out for you. And when I say work, uh, uh, works out, I mean, um, you know, it might be a, a few months from now, it might take 10 years, but basically uh, those particular futures will materialize because of the way that these critical uncertainties resolve themselves. Okay. So, um, so, uh, let's let's take a let's take a really simple example from the past so you can see what i'm talking about here so let's go back to it let's let's say you're a company in the in the uk and it's three four years ago and they were talking about this thing called brexit you know uh, we might lose we might leave the uh the eu right and everybody in especially in the business world if you said well will, will brexit make a difference to you I'll say, are you kidding me? Yes, it's going to make all the all the difference in the world to uh, how we do business and you know whether we're allowed to do this, whether we're free to do that. We don't know. And and then you'd say, great. So is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? And then people would sort of shrug and say, well, you know, the polls right now are you know fifty one forty nine, and then then the next day they're forty eight fifty two, and so it's basically it's up for grabs. Nobody knows. So that's a classic example of a critical uncertainty where the outcome is potentially hugely different if things go like this compared to if they go like that. But at the time when you're actually looking at uh, those two futures, you don't have any idea which one of them is going to actually materialize. So what would you do in that situation if you were a CEO? Well, you would probably say we need a plan for both. You know, we need, we need to have two Two plans. I don't necessarily mean you need to have you know two two fifty-page st strategic plans, but you need to have some kind of idea what you would do in either case, and have both of those things sort of sitting in the drawer, waiting for the vote, right? And as soon as you knew which which way it was going to be, you, you had your plan ready, and boom, you take it out you know the following morning and start implementing. Now, in scenario planning, the process uh, aims to get at what those critical uncertainties are for your organization. And they're different for everybody. Now, in the case of Brexit, Brexit was a critical uncertainty for, you know, you could say for thousands and thousands of, of British companies or companies doing business with the UK. So it actually was one of those rare situations where it was a critical uncertainty that wasn't specific only to you, but it really, it honestly, truly was a critical uncertainty for you along with everybody else. But most of the time, the critical uncertainties have to do with things that are happening in your industry, 
They could be political changes that are sort of in the wind, uh, potentially, right? Because you don't know. They could be technological things that are possibly out there, um, or maybe a new competitor might sort of come in. You know, what happens if Amazon sort of enters your market? That sort of a thing. So um, the process. Finally, getting back to your question, the process is that um, you begin by trying to list all or as many as possible of the um, trends and developments and even events that could have some kind of an impact on your future. And those are called driving forces, basically. And they, you know, they can range from things that will have a big impact on your future to things that will have only a very marginal impact. But you still try to list them. And you're usually uh, to help you. It's basically just kind of an aid memoir to make this this process happen a little bit more easily. You you stick to something like the so-called PEST model, which um, you know you probably know about that. But it's PEST is P-E-S-T, right. political, economic, societal, and technological changes, and that just helps you helps you kind of when you're going through the the list in your mind. You're thinking, uh, okay, I've done all the political changes I can come up with now. Let's move on to the next category, and you can basically then start listing in a systematic way. And of course, there are variations on the PEST model. Some people introduce another category, which is environmental change. So then now the, the PEST model is called STEEP, and then there's PESTLE, and then there's, I don't know, there's I, I saw one one time that had 10 different things and it was a, some unpronounceable mess. So you know, you know, nobody uses that model. But the point is, is that, you know, you have some, you, you have a, a structure that helps you to, to come up with these things. And that's what you do at a workshop, obviously, where you've, you know, you split up the team into four working groups and, you know, set them loose for an hour and they come back. And, they, and typically after one hour, four working teams will come back and you start, you know, posting flip chart uh, sheets up on the wall and you, you've got a hundred driving forces and every single one of them, according to the, the working teams will have some kind of an impact on how things develop for you in the future. Then what you need to do, the next step is to filter that enormous uh, number of, of, of driving forces down to the ones that really are make or break. Those are the critical uncertainties I was talking about before. So which out of those you know, potentially 100 things are the equivalents of Brexit for you, right? And those things will, well, first of all, this is a very important part of the process because you want to get this right. But also it's important to go through this process because if you've got a, you know, 15 or 20 people in the room, believe me, they never agree on what are the two most critical uncertainties. You know, everybody's got their own idea. So you have to have this, um, process of kind of, uh, uh, you know, basically just dis discussing it and coming up to, with some consensus. Otherwise, you just, the whole thing kind of devolves into fisticuffs, and that's no fun. Uh, right. uh, well, it's fun for me as a, as right. a facilitator because I don't have to get involved. But, but basically, um, people do come with very biased ways of thinking about, you know, what's important. Then when you have two critical uncertainties, just two, those two become the axes, the, the two axes of a of a two by two matrix. You know, so you've got, let's say, across the x axis, you've got Brexit, for example. So here you say will remain, we the UK will remain here, UK will leave the EU, and then you have an, uh, the y axis, and on the y axis, let's just say as an example, you'd have um, uh, 
something like, uh, I don't know, there will be a US-China trade war, and the other one is that there will not be a trade war, something like that. And then the combination of the of those how those two very important factors for your future, how they combine and maybe maybe feed off of each other, um, determines four contrasting business landscapes. And then you you know you go on from there, basically saying, okay, now if if this really would be the landscape, what would it look like for us? Because you you don't you know based on this the process up to that point, you've you've got each one of them described by just two variables, right? Either, yes, it's Brexit, and yes, there's a trade war or whatever. But, you know, there, there are more things than that that will determine what your future would be like. So you'd say, ah, now let's see here. If there is Brexit and there is a trade war, you know, that would probably mean, you know, A, B, C, D. And we could also imagine blah, 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 blah. And you just kind of go through it like that. It's sure. all at that stage creativity, based, but based on, you know, feet on the ground uh, experience and and you know so, yes of course there's 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 some um, hunches and and some ideas and sometimes people say no that's ridiculous take that take that off the list but basically um, with with people's uh, know-how of the of the business that they're in the industry they serve you know customer behaviors and all all those other things they're able to say this is what those four different scenarios would would look and feel like as as terrains that we would have to do business in and then finally the the the, the final steps of the process are to say okay great so if we if we're comfortable that those are indeed the characteristics of uh, you know these four different worlds um, what specific opportunities might arise for us or what specific challenges would we have to tackle if we were in that and then if that's if, if we're comfortable with with what we've listed there so we kind of know what the scenario looks and feels like here are some opportunities here are some challenges what's our plan and then you put together your plan like i said it doesn't have to be in great detail because in some cases the plan is not something you'd even begin to implement for maybe three or four years until you kind of see which one of the scenarios is is actually materializing but the idea is, is that you you already know in advance what you would probably do if that is the scenario that you find is the real working world that kind of you know emerges around you so can you give us an example of uh, what a success story looks like and um uh, something where you gave somebody advice and it, they they took it and um and then maybe an example of somebody that crashed and burned and um, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you can't talk about that, but <laughs> actually I can't talk about either one because almost in almost every case, the, the, you know, this is confidential. This is part of a strategy formulation of a company. So, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to say, yeah, here, let me tell you three success stories, but there's two, there's two reasons. That's one reason why I really can't do it. And the other one is because they're so long-term, you know? Um, let, but let me tell you a, a historically uh, valid okay. story to answer your question. And maybe you already know this because it's sort of one, it's, it's the one that gets written up a lot. But it's the famous story of Shell Oil. Oh. Basically, back in the, I guess it would have been the late 1960s, Shell Oil uh, decided that they would set up a little foresight team within their um, strate strategic planning unit, I suppose. And these were kind of uh, 
you know, these kind of weird thinkers or whatever they were, they, they were, they kind of off to their, off on their own at the end of the corridor or something. And, you know, uh, they were considered a little bit right. odd, a little bit oddballs because right. they, they were, they were asked basically to kind of imagine the future rather than what, what at that time, you know, seemed much more reasonable, which is to analyze, you know, where are we going and predict and project and forecast, you know, the usual hard science type of uh, approach. Um, and at some point, right around the year 1970, one of, one of the uh, scenarios that they came up with for the future of the, of the oil industry was that um, the, the countries producing oil in the Middle East, who were primarily um, Arab, Arabic countries, um, would eventually get, find a way to get together and use the, the oil as basically as a weapon against the West, uh, mainly because possibly there'd be some flare up in the Arab-Israeli uh, uh, tension that's sort of you know, simmering there forever. And that if that would happen, then this uh, it would be some kind of cartel or some kind of coordinated uh, price hike or something like that. And it would hurt us all. It would hurt everybody in the industry. It would hurt, you know, basically everybody who drives a car and, you know, needs oil for anything. So it was one of those things that went in the drawer because, and I, I'm not even sure if they laughed at it or thought, oh, this is interesting or what, but basically they just, they, they put it to one side because it, you know, wasn't happening. And bingo, in 1973, there was something called the Yom Kippur War, which is exactly the kind of uh, spark that was predicted in this scenario. And within, I can't tell you how many hours or days or whatever, but basically right afterwards, uh, OPEC was founded and um, the price of oil was quadrupled overnight. And uh, the constant, so that the Yom Kippur conflict was in October 73, if I'm not mistaken. And um, by Christmas of that year, so two months later, basically, uh, two, two or two and a half months later, uh, you had a situation where in the United States, for example, they had lowered the speed limits on the highways to 55 miles an hour to, and, and gasoline prices were just, you know, now we all wish that they'd go back to those levels, right? right? But I mean, but at that time, they, they uh, I don't know, tripled or quadrupled overnight. And that this was outrageous. Well, Shell, coming back to Shell, uh, when this happened, I guess the CEO of Shell kind of came, you know, running down the corridor to the office of the weirdos and said, hey, you know, do you still have that? that um, scenario that you came up with. And there, there was not only a scenario, but there was a list of recommendations of what, what should be done by the company in case that would happen. And they implemented those. I, I wish I could tell you what they were, but I don't know them. But the, the legend is, the lore is that um, uh, Shell had a, had a huge head start on all the other companies who had never even thought about something like that. And so they actually were starting at zero, thinking about what should we do? Shell already had a plan. It doesn't mean that they followed necessarily every step that the weirdos had come up with, because after all, you know, they're weirdos, right? But um, possibly they possibly they had uh, come up with some things that were v very valuable in terms of um, concrete steps that could be taken that would be, you know, very reasonable for the organization and doable quickly and you know would stanch the bleeding if there was some and that's exactly what happened so it's you know that's that's written up in all of the scenario planning books because it's just such a 
such a great example of how scenario planning is, is, is meant to work. Um, and in my own, uh, my own experience, I, let's put it this way, I, I've seen very interesting contrasting scenarios. And for a lot of them, it's just kind of still too early to say whether or not we're, we actually have gone in this direction or that direction. Or things like, um, uh, I don't know, regulatory regulatory regimes. Will they get a little bit laxer or a little bit more burdensome? That sort of thing. And you know, you can you can see. But you know, you are actually you're touching on an interesting thing. I, I should throw in here, and that goes back to the process. And that is to understand that when you've gone through this whole uh, methodology, you've, you've followed the technique all the way to the end, and you've said, okay, great. Here's four scenarios, and they're different from each other, just like they're supposed to be. And here's our opportunities and here's our challenges and here's our plan. Yeah, great. You're not finished. You're, 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 you're 90% finished. But the thing is, is that you have to then set up a kind of a monitoring program to actually look at the world and be able to say at some point, oh, you know what? It kind of looks like things are going, going in the direction of this one. Right you know, in the upper right-hand quadrant, as opposed to this other one over here. Um, and that monitoring program needs to identify what would be some logical signposts or, you know, indicators that you would expect could um, concretely tell you that, oh yeah, looks like this is happening rather than that. Because if, you're, if you've picked your critical uncertainties correctly, they, at the time that you did the exercise, they are truly uncertain, right? So come back to Brexit as an example. If you did the exercise and, and you chose Brexit as one of your critical uncertainties, what would be a, an indicator which direction you're going in, right? Well, yes, if the poll started to show that it was 70-30 rather than 50-50, that would be an indicator, right? But if it remained 50-50 up until the last possible, possible minute, the only indicator you get is the actual the vote, vote yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, which is rare because normally things sort of begin to be a little identifiable in advance. If we're talking about things like trends, you know, a vote or you know, an election, something like that is something that clearly has a day where the day before you don't know, the day after you do know, boom. But normally things are evolving and it's up to you to keep an eye on that evolutionary process that's going on so you can read the you know you can read the signals that are being sent to you by the by uh, by the marketplace um yeah so if if you were going to go down the path of um doing scenarios for uh, I don't know, maybe maybe this infringes on something you've already done, but uh, a company that's manufacturing internal combustion engines right now, as an example. And and we, we all know that there's uh, all sense that there's lots of changes ahead for that type of company. Um, how would you go about putting that together? Okay, um, <clears throat> good question. Well, the... Uh, you know, I, I would not necessarily do anything differently in terms of the process I already told you about. So I'm not, I won't necessarily repeat that. You know, right, it's, right. it's but, but essentially you'd say, okay, we need to figure out what uh, are the driving forces that would affect us in, in, in the uh, car business, you know, the conventional car business. And of course, one of them that it's, it's, 
you know, it's uh, a no-brainer. It would just be, well, what will be the future of, ele of, of electric vehicles, right? So will EVs, um, you know, they're, they're coming for sure, but the, but the uncertainty might be uh, within the, whatever we've chosen as a time horizon. So let's just say it's five years, okay? So it's, it's not tomorrow and it's not, it's not 15 years from now, but it's five years from now. So within the five-year timeframe, um, will EVs capture 35% um, market share of new vehicle sold or on the other end of the, of the uh, axis, uh, they will remain at uh, you know, less than 10%. I'm not sure what the number is right now, but let's just, so one of them is they're very successful and they're a real threat. And the other one is they're sort of still a little bit niche niche players, there's their they're, they're competitor for sure. But you know, we, we still have 90% of the market. Um, and then you'd have, uh, you do a, a, a second axis clearly. And I don't know what that might be because that might be something a little bit more company specific, for example. Um, and then that would determine four different worlds. One would be uh, an, an EV dominated world or an EV Maybe not dominated, but uh, what's the world? Uh, what's the word? Uh, EVs coming on strong, right? right. Uh, another, uh, a, a, along with whatever the other factor is, um, and the other one, the on the other side of the of the matrix, it's uh, EVs. Nothing to worry about, you know. Um, still struggling, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And then you you you'd end up with your your four your description of four different worlds here. And you might, you, you know, you might also decide to quantify a few of these assumptions. Like I did a moment ago, I said 35% versus 10%. Well, you know, maybe it's 50% versus 20 or 1% versus, uh, you know, 15. I'm not sure what makes sense, but the point is that you will, you, you the customer, right? You, the client will know what, what, how, how, to, how to define um, a, a, an EV threatening situation for us. And one where the EVs are really not a, not a worry. And then what we might also do is when we start to look at the, you know, we start to sort of suss out some of the details of the, of the scenarios, we might also assign um, certain quantified, um, like, I don't know, certain KPIs. We might say, let me think of an example here. Oh, okay, okay. So let's say in a world where there's lots of EVs, so there's the 35% EVs world, uh, just we might say, by that time, there will be 20 manufacturers of, of electric vehicles um, operating in the world. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what the number is right now. So I, I, I'm right. picking that number, thinking that that's a big number, right? Maybe maybe it's 40. But but the essential thing is that we would say, yeah, in the in that future, we could expect to see more makers of EVs, not just more EVs sold, but more companies behind it. And then we would also expect to see um, uh, battery life, you know, uh, has uh, extended and is now, I don't know, uh, one month, you know, something like one month per charge or, you know, uh, the, the range is range of the average EV is, you know, 1000 miles or something like that. So it's, it's, it's guesswork, right? It's always guesswork, but the point is that you're trying to actually, um, not predict what it will become, but to explore how different it might be 
from the other possible ways things could turn out. So you're looking for contrast and that might lead you to exaggerate some things. So maybe you don't really believe there would be you know, 20 EV manufacturers that, um, but you still say, yeah, there would be because this is the world in which EVs are really, they're the wave of the future. And you know, if that's the case, everybody's piling into the market, let's just say 20. And then if, if you know, if, if you actually, you know, keep, keep the outcome of the scenario exercise around for five years and five years later, somebody says, oh yeah, but there's only 14. So you were wrong. You say, well, yeah, what's the market share? Well, 34%. Say, yeah, was close. I really wrong? You know, yeah. was I wrong? You know, did it matter if it's 14 versus uh, 20 or, or whatever? So you could, bottom line is you could quantify some of those things. You don't have to quantify any of them because it's, it's really all about look and feel, but sometimes the look and the feel, um, you know, are become a little bit more uh, recognizable um, if you put some numbers, so put some numbers on them. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. really good. That was really good. Uh, I, I was curious as to whether or not you have any way of getting people to accurately concretize their feelings about how they think the industry is going to unfold because what counts as a lot can vary wildly between people, uh, even bet. people who've carefully studied the field. So I'm just imagining when you yeah. ask this question, somebody says 8% market share for EVs and somebody else says no yeah. 70% market share for EVs. Yeah. Right. And then as you said, you want to stop it from devolving into fisticuffs. So right. uh, what, what does that resolution process look like? Well, it varies in each situation. I mean, you know, I, 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 let's put it this way. I don't have like a magic formula where I just step in and, you know, blow a whistle and say, now we're all going to play this one little game here and then we'll emerge as friends or something like that. You know, it's not, it's not like uh, uh, team building kind of stuff, you know. It's more where you say, oh, gosh, uh, hey, everybody, you know, time out. We apparently don't have agreement on this issue, so let's talk it through. And it's, it's never really been something that is, was not resolvable. But I'll tell you one thing that's uh, relevant to this point, and that is uh, you, you do have to be careful if the boss is in the room. And uh, I'm sure you can imagine why. is because, um, you know, the, if, if, you're a, if you're younger and, you know, more junior, uh, not as much experience, whatever, you are not going to say, I think it's going to be 70% if the boss says it's going to be 10. It's just, you are not, you're going to, it's not going to happen. And I've seen the same thing happen, only a slight variation where it, whereas everybody's fine with all of the discussion. And then the CEO uh, who wasn't in part of the exercise pops in at the coffee break to say, hello, how are you guys doing? And nobody says a word after that point. You know, it's just like the room just goes absolutely stone cold silent. And it's, I, can't, I can't get anybody to talk. And, you know, it tells me a lot about the company, right. doesn't it? You know, right. sadly. But um, it also makes me think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is difficult to, to reach a true consensus if the boss won't allow consensus to be formed, Right. And I, I, I can't tell you the number of times when the boss has kind of scotched the scenario development. And if I'm lucky, you know, if I'm lucky, I can actually talk to him or her. It's never actually, it's never been a her in this situation um, 
which also might say something about the style of a, of a female CEO too, as right. well. But, but basically, uh, if I'm lucky, I can pull that person aside and say, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you go back to your office and leave us alone and <laughs> and, uh, and let us get on with this, and and I'll come back and report to you on where you know where we're headed." But I think that it's it's better for the sake of uh, you know open discussion if maybe you're not there just because you're you're you know you're a bit intimidating, and most CEOs actually love hearing that they're intimidating. Right? <laughs> this, is, this doesn't this doesn't make them angry. They actually kind of go, oh well, I guess I sort of am, you know. And then yeah, yeah the next thing you know, uh, you're back on track. Um, but so I did have a situation once. So but let me just tell you let me just tell you one quick story. I had a situation once where. Uh, we did this. We did the scenarios, and then the the way that the the day was structured was that we did we did them all, and then the CEO was going to join the group uh, for the final hour and a half or whatever. And my job uh, was I was going to be up on stage. It's a big group, uh, bigger than usual, and I was actually going to present the four scenarios to the boss, and he was going to comment on them strategically. And, you know, on paper, that sounded so thrillingly and exciting. It's going to be great, you know. And and what happened was he uh, found me at the coffee break just before our session was going to begin and said, show me the scenarios. I said, I and I thought, oh, these are supposed to be a surprise, pal, you know. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, wait a minute here. Uh, what am I thinking here? Of course, I better show, show them to him. And I did. And he looked at one and he said, uh, we're not talking about this one. I said, let me see, let me see number two. And you go, mm, that, no, we're not going to talk about that one either. And I'm sitting there, oh, I'm, no. I'm, just, I'm just thinking the whole day is just out the window. You know, what, what do you mean we're not going to talk about them? And I, you know, kind of screwed up the courage to say, well, uh, why, why, why? Can't, can't we at least talk about them? He said, I, I was hired by the board of this company, you know, 18 months ago or something like that to come in and clean up and introduce a new strategy. And that's what I've done. And I goddamn well don't want a, a, any other vision than my own oh, no. to be presented to these people. <laughs> and I thought, I should probably just slink off right now and catch, <laughs> catch a plane, catch a plane back home because I'm not going to end up looking good at this at the end of this. Like, yeah. Did you do that? Slink off? No, yeah. no, no, no. So then, how I, did it end? <laughs> well, we just talked. You know, I. How did it end? I didn't. I didn't actually say to the audience that, "Hey, the boss decided that you know he's not. We're not even going to talk about these two. <laughs> I just said something like, you know, in the event of in the in the interest of time, uh, I've had a chat with so and so, and we really want to get into these other two scenarios here because they're the ones that really are the most interesting." From the point of view of kind of this, the existing strategy and 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 looking forward, so let's just go straight to scenario number three, and we'll start talking about that. And of course, you know, nobody really notices. I'm the ones, you know, I'm the sweating bullets, but nobody else really. Uh, they noticed, but I don't think they really cared. And then you know, feel you feel it the whole time because of course, you know, CEOs are they love to hear themselves talk like yeah. like I do, and uh, <laughs> and so uh, and so there was no problem at all for this guy to to, to talk for an hour and a half about the the two scenarios rather than about the four and it, it turned out to be fine but i i really i didn't really like what what appeared to be happening you know yeah. to to my event right i mean right. he's the client but i was my event yeah what are you doing sure so it it occurs to me that 
uh, kind of the dynamics of something like this changes depending on the size of the organization. So is your preference never to have a CEO involved? Um, and I'm thinking that if it's a smaller organization, you definitely want to have that person there yeah, involved definitely. in the process. But yeah. uh, how, how, do, how does your thinking evolved over time on that? Well, um, my, my thinking basically has just, um, I, I now just know to be careful about that. You know, because I, I it it took me completely by surprise the first time it happened, and then the second time it happened, it you know it also took me by surprise. And now you know by the third time, you know you should kind of be at least aware that it could happen. So you know in advance what the role of the CEO is going to be. He's he, he or she is either going to be in the in the process with everybody, or maybe come in later, or maybe just not. You know, sorry, but this is not something I'm. It's not because I'm not interested, but it might be something that, you know, I, I'm not, I don't need to be participating or I've got something else I need to be doing or whatever, or I leave this up to the marketing department to do this thing or whatever. Um, but even in that case, you still have a boss, right? So it's, it's the hierarchical difference that causes the issues if there is one. And I guess all I can say really is you just have to kind of be aware that it, there's always the possibility that there could be some ruffled feathers, um, because the troops are not, you know, to mix a metaphor, the, the troops are not necessarily following the, uh, uh, they're not singing out of the same songbook to mix the metaphor even more. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but, and, but, you know, you see that and you, you, you sort of are used to it. In general, though, I think you're absolutely right. It's better to have the person who is ultimately responsible for the, for the future strategy Um I would always want that if possible. And I also um, think, I, I, I always suggest this, but it's rarely accepted as a, you know, something that, that they actually take me up on. I also sometimes say, invite a couple of guests, um, you know, get, get, you know, get a couple of outsiders who also know this industry or whatever to participate. And the answer uh, is usually, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like who? And I'll say, well, you could maybe get, I don't know, maybe maybe your biggest supplier. And they go, are you joking? I say, well, what about one of your big customers? Are you out of your mind? And I'll say, well, yeah, well, what about a sociology professor in that case, you know, could talk about what's going on in societal change. And then they go, oh, well, that could be interesting. Do you know any sociology professors? And I think, mm, actually, let me think about that. Um, so the, the, uh, the answer is that... Um, the process is generally speaking confidential. It's part of, it's done for strategic reasons, right? And so we don't necessarily want to have somebody else uh, uh, out from outside participating unless it's somebody who clearly, you know, not only couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't harm the process, but probably is, you know, not even going to understand half of what goes on. So, you know, what harm could this person do? And that, like I say, that's that turns out to be very, very rare. But I always suggest it because I think you know one day someone will go, "That's a great idea," and then we'll actually get <laughs> you know our biggest customer, and then everything will. I don't know. Actually, that since this never happened. I don't know what will happen. What, what would be the outcome <laughs> of that? But I can imagine it could be really interesting for everybody. 
It'd be an right. interesting story to tell on your second appearance on this podcast. Um, and if, if anybody has a, has a hard time. One from, from my hospital bed. Right. <laughs> if anyone has a hard time disagreeing with the boss, I would just advise them to read your book. Because in the opening pages, you call Albert Einstein an idiot. And so yeah, the, if that's not an example of speaking truth to power, then I, I don't know what is. Okay, well. Yes, I, I guess I did. I did have unkind things to say about, about old Al. <laughs> did, I, did I actually call him an idiot? I think I, I said uh, it surprised was... me. How, it surprised me how stupid he was, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, That's well, not it's... exactly the same thing, right? Uh, okay, yeah. close enough. Well, so actually, but, actually, but but you know, can we at least while we're on that subject, so that people who are listening are not thinking, "Oh, this guy's an idiot." We can at least. Can I clarify why I said that? Well, yeah. So I, I was going to use that for my next question. So if you, oh, have, okay, if you go want ahead. To... Yes, please do. No, go ahead. Please. Yeah, so, so he's he's got this quote where uh, he, he's he's said to have quipped that he never thinks about the future because it's going to be here soon enough. And yeah. Thomas actually has this theory that part of what shapes civilization and drives it forward is visions of what our lives could be and what the future will will yeah. uh, what will come to pass and and absolutely. The, the ways we want to see it unfold. So right. what we're aiming for has a lot to, right. has, has a lot of bearing on, on the present. And so I, I was just wondering, given your, your years in this industry and all the times you've walked people through this process, if you wanted to comment on that, this, this dynamic. The interesting thing about scenario planning, and, and it's also one of the things that is hard to uh, get beginners to, to uh, take on board is the idea that what you are really talking about is what is going to possi- possibly, it's not predictions, right? But what, what possibly could happen in, out there in the world around you. It's not about you shaping the future. It's about the future that probably will end up shaping you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, depending on how big you are, right, in your industry or, you know, just how big you are, you know, full stop, you could end up shaping the future, that's clear. That's obvious. But for the for most organizations, they have to deal with the world as it evolves, and um, they can you know they might be able to have some influence around the around the edges, but you know the way the world evolves is it's just going to evolve that way with or without them. And the scenario planning process helps them foresee that, so they can get ready for it. <clears throat> now, um, having said that. I do know I've, I've read this. This is not something that's part of like my my book on scenario planning. I don't think mentions this, um, but I've seen it many times. That a lot of people say, "Well, which which of the scenarios here is the is our preferred scenario?" You know, so we've done we've got four scenarios that we've sussed out here. So which one is our preferred scenario? And I'm thinking that well, as if you could actually, you know influence the Brexit decision, you know, one way or the other, or as if you could, I don't know, you, you, you could actually change the future because you want one of them to, to materialize. Um, so I tend to say, no, um, don't try to talk or don't try to mix your, uh, wishful thinking. If I can, you know, dismiss it like that, but don't try to um, uh, confuse what you want to happen in the future with what you think really could happen plausibly. Um, but rather, uh, if you if you get an idea as to what plausibly could happen, then take a look at yourself and, and your resources and your capabilities and say, hey, 
okay, so let's just say that this is this is the future we're handed. Um, now what do we do? What do we what what can we do to actually um, make that the rosiest possible future for us? You know, what are what are the opportunities there that that we can um, exploit? Maybe we have to uh, acquire some you know some some capabilities that we don't have or something like that. But but you know for sure you're going to have to make some changes. It's not like you know well we're ready for anything right now already. Normally. You know, there would be some things that you would have to change between now and when that future materializes in order to actually um, thrive in that future, the, thrive the best you possibly can, right? Um, but whatever future you're handed, that's, you know, that's got to be the future you, you work with. And so wishing up front that 10 years from now, things will turn out uh, in, in, in one particular, you know, um, constellation of of, uh, of 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 characteristics only is practical if you can actually influence that coming to pass and i think the chances of that are usually close to zero interesting so i mean there are ceos that seem to have more ability to steer the future where they want it to go than others so if, yes. if elon musk or jeff bezos or steve jobs yes. hired you to do scenario planning like what right. would you amend your advice or are those just sort of epical people that have some kind of flair that the rest of us can't aspire to and so oh. you know what works for them won't work yeah. for us well that's a that's a great question um so those just those two guys just taking uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Um, well, they've got they've got each of them have have two things that you know the average person doesn't have. Uh, one is some kind of a visionary way of of just saying you know this is this is I'm going to do this this is the way things are going to happen and, and I'm going to make it happen. But they also have you know a bank account that we don't have either, right? Yeah. So you, you need to have some resources to to be able to um, shape the future like that. Um, if one of those guys actually were to come to me and say, "Hey, we want to do some scenario planning," for, it's really I never thought about this before, but I, I'm I'm almost betting that they they would never do that because <laughs> why would why would they want some you know some nobody from Switzerland to uh, to, to, to go through a kind of a, a, a pedestrian process that everybody goes through when they know all they have to do is just say, you know what, go on to Mars. And it just so happens, you know, and, and it wouldn't, that wouldn't come out of uh, the, the scenario process. I don't think, I don't think it, it, yeah. it's worth thinking about, but it's a really interesting question. I would point out that they didn't always have a lot of money that, uh, <laughs> that they were, I know, the, the, I know that they were much more like us uh, when they started. So I know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, but, but it means in that case then that they had the indomitable, you know, vision and spirit that, that said, you know, I don't have the money now, but you know, with this vision, the money will soon follow. And it did. I'm not saying that just because you have that particular personality that, you know, instantly riches just kind of pile up around you. If only that were true, but I would say that um, you, um, you, you know, if you're if you're one of those one in a million people, like like those two guys, um, they know that they have established uh, a track record of making things happen that weren't that that's 
it's not that they, that, I don't think anybody said this, that's impossible. They never just never even thought of it in the first place, right? So nobody had any idea that something was possible or impossible. There was nobody saying, oh no, Elon, come on, that's a stupid idea. Just, you know, hey, I'm going to do this, and off he, off he went. And there just aren't many people like that. You could probably count them on, you know, both hands and both feet in the history of business, you know, the, the Thomas Edisons and the Henry Fords and, uh, you know, I'm I'm already I'm already, I've already run out of names, you know. I, I don't know. There are uh, Bill Bill Gates, you know. I mean, there there are there are some, of course. Uh, Steve Jobs, yeah, yeah. We could come up with some, but those you can't. In a certain way, you can't really um, measure the value of scenario planning against what these guys are able to do, just because they're human dynamos, and that's not. You know, sadly, that's not what the world is made of. Uh, in in an in an organ in a normal organization, you know, they're they're mortal beings like like the three of us, and and they need some structure to help them think about the future, rather than to say, "I've already got a a bizarre idea." You know, I'm going off. I go by, and nobody can stop them. You know, and most of the time it works out. So, do you do you do work for militaries then too? Because I'm sure they go through lots of scenario planning. Yes, I do. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They have. Uh, that's that's also, I think, one of the places where scenario planning originally started, even before the shell days. Because you can imagine, you know, an, an army would want to have some idea of the possible, uh, you know, conflict landscapes that are out there that they might be dealing with, you know, in the in the very near future. You know, what are the enemy's capabilities? Where is the enemy? Where could the enemy be next week? That sort of a thing. So it's clear that that you know that's where the the, the mindset came from. Okay. Do I work with military? Not not like that. No, I've done um, a couple of things with some uh, organizations that are you know in the military umbrella, but it's uh, it's more to do with uh, long term uh, security issues. I, for example, I did something. Um, it's it, it was a room full of people who were all in the military, but from 25 different countries. And they were all security analysts for their respective countries. And we did something on the future of ISIS. And that was pretty interesting. Because hmm. some, some of the people in the room actually knew, knew a lot about it. And other people, you know, if you're, if you're the chief uh, security officer for Panama or something like that, you know, ISIS is not really on your radar screen the way other security issues might be like migration or something like that. But you know, if you are from Pakistan or something like that, yeah, it's uh, you got a lot of lot of know how, and we came up with four different scenarios for how ISIS could develop um, over the next uh, five years. That was about five years ago, and it was how it could develop over the over the following five years, something like that. Um, but I don't think anybody actually, you know, left the room and made a phone call and said, you know, here are the coordinates, you know, make sure that <laughs> make sure those bombs are falling by two p.m. <laughs> nothing, nothing quite like that. You know, if only. It's a great story to tell. Well, yeah. fantastic! Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking about My your methodology pleasure. and uh, regaling us with stories of your exploits. And um, <laughs> we hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, this is terrific. I hope so, too. I've had a great time. Thank you very much for your interest. And uh, I, I would look forward to another another chance to talk anytime. Now one more. How can people find you if, if they're not visionary genius billionaires and they, they're interested in scenario planning? 
you know, even if you are a visionary <laughs> billionaire, let me give you my website anyway, yeah. right? So it's so it's woodywade.com and Woody Wade is written as one word, W-O-O-D-Y, like you know, yes. like Woody, right? Sure. And Wade, like Wade in the Water, W-A-D-E dot com. And and that's where you'll find out all the details about getting in touch. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.